Welcome to the UGA BCM Podcast, a ministry of the BCM at the University of Georgia. To find out more about us, follow us on Instagram at UGA BCM. Be sure to hang around to the end of the episode for a special interview with Tommy. We hope you enjoy today's episode. With that said, let's jump right into Genesis chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, and see what in the world we're going to talk about. I've entitled this simply, A Marriage of Faith. A Marriage of Faith. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I live. But you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and who swore to me saying, to your descendants I will give this land, he will send his angel before you and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of goods of his masters in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, where he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink and who answers, drink and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Now, here's the deal. There's about 67 verses here. So we need to tear this apart piece by piece if we can. Y'all got that? And so let's set the stage for this just very quickly. Then we'll read some more, set the stage, read some more, etc. So up to this point, what we see taking place here is that Abraham's getting old. His wife's already died. And uh, it's funny. Abraham stays old for a long time. Did y'all notice that? Right? Back before Isaac was born, Abraham was already old, right? And so here's Abraham. He's still old. And so uh, Isaac's been born. Uh, Isaac's grown up. Uh, Sarah has, has now passed away. And he looks at his servant and he says, man, I have to have a wife for my son. Why does he say that? Because he remembered the promise that God had given him, which was that he was going to be the father of many nations, of great nations, right? And so ultimately, Abraham understands if he's going to be the father of many nations, and if that ultimately the whole world is going to be blessed through his lineage, then the bottom line is, is that his son has to have children. Right? It doesn't work any other way, okay? And so he realizes for that to happen, he needs a wife. And so he looks at his, ma- at his servant and he says, hey, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go back to the land that we're from, and I need you to find, amongst our kinspeople, I need you to find a wife for my son. And uh, he's like, well, what if she's not willing to come? And he says, do not take my son back there. And also he says, you cannot take a Canaanite as a wife for my son. And so that's where we get here, uh, ultimately, uh, beginning in, or ending down in verse 14. And in verse 14, what we see, really verse 10 through verse 14, is the master, or excuse me, the servant, gets his stuff together. He heads to the town, and as he's coming into the town, 
I mean, it's really kind of a crazy situation because he's like, I know I have to find a wife for Isaac, right? And so what does he do? Uh, he ultimately goes to the spring. And when he goes to the spring, he goes to this area where all the women are going to come out and they're going to draw water. And so what he does is he begins to pray. And he ultimately says that uh, basically, uh, notice what he says here. He says, now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink. And he who answers, drink and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed on your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. So the servant here says to God, he prays to God and he says, hey God, here's the deal. He says, I'm, 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 I'm chilling out here at this spring. All the daughters of the, of the city are coming out. And uh, I'm going to ask one for water. And so the one that gives me water but also is willing to give water to my camels, that's how I'm going to know that ultimately this is the lady that I'm taking back to Isaac. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? All right, so we'll keep reading. It gets a little more interesting. Before he had finished speaking in verse 15, behold, so before he ever finishes praying, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with a jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they had finished. Ding, ding, ding. Hey, we got a winner, right? So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back. Uh, to the well to draw. By the way, one camel could drink up to 25 gallons of water. So this lady is like drawing water for 10 camels, right? That's nuts. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing 10 shekels in gold and said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again, she said to him, we have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshiped the Lord. He said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brother. So y'all following with me? So now here's what we get. Lady come and does exactly what he was praying that the lady would come and do, right? And so he meets Rebecca and then he's like, hey, who are you? And she tells him who she is and ultimately it's some of the kinspeople of Abraham. So he's like, boom, checklist, we're good there. And then he goes, can I hang out in your house? Right, I need somewhere to stay. And she's like, yeah, we got plenty of room, come on. Verse 28, then the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban later becomes an issue. Y'all remember that later in Genesis? All right, if you don't, you can move a couple of chapters sooner or further I should say and Laban Laban's a little bit of a trickster and Laban ran outside to the man at the spring verse 30 when he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist and when he heard the words of Rebecca his sister saying this is what the man said to me he went to the man and behold he was standing by the camels at the spring and he said come in be blessed of the Lord why do you stand outside since I prepared the house and a place for the camels <coughs> so the man entered the house then Laban unloaded the camels, and he gave straw and feed to the camels, and water to wash his feet, and the feet of the men who were with him. But when the food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I've told my business. So here we go. He gets, he gets welcomed into the house, right? Laban sees that he's got jewelry. And Laban's like, hey, this guy, he's got jewelry. Let's let him enter into the house. So he lets him enter the house, and he's like, tell me the story of what goes on. And uh, he says, but I want to feed you first. And he's like, nope, we ain't got time. I got to tell you the story now. 
So he said, speak on. Verse 34. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich. And he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. Now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age. And he has given him all that he has. Which, by the way, as he's telling this story, these folks would have remembered when, when Abram left. You got that? So now they're like, oh, sweet. This is good. He's doing well. All right, so we, we continue to talk. It says here in verse 37, My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live. Which, by the way, that makes a lot of sense because what happened to Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember that story? Right? Probably pretty wise not to take a wife from the land of the Canaanites. So we continue here. But you shall go to my father's house and to my relatives and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Suppose the woman does not follow me. And he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you to make your journey successful. And you will take a wife for my son from my relatives and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath. And when you come to my relatives, and if they do not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. So I came today this spring and I said, O Lord, the God of my father, or master Abraham, if you will now make my journey on which I go successful. Behold, I am standing by the spring. And may it be that the maiden who comes out to draw and... Do I need to read that part again? He really tells exactly what took place, remember? Right? So we'll go on down a little bit for sake of time. It says 45. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder and went down the spring and drew. And I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will water your camels also. So I drank and she watered her camels also. Then I asked her and said, whose daughter are you? So she tells her whose daughter it is. He says, I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrist. Hey, did y'all check that out? Did y'all check that out? He put the ring on her nose. Isn't that cool? Right? Right? Allie, this is where I'm supposed to point you out, right? Okay, I told Allie this morning in a staff meeting, I said, hey, Allie, nose rings are okay. You know why I know nose rings are okay? Because right here, dadgummit, Rebecca had a nose ring. Isn't that kind of cool? All right, so listen. Hey, you women out there, guess what? If a man says, hey, I'm going to go get you a nose ring, hey, you can be just like Rebecca. Y'all got it? Yay. There's, <laughs> never mind. I'll, I'll move on. That's terrible, isn't it? So now, verse 49. So now, if you're going to, ideal, or to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, let me know, and I'll just basically leave. I'll turn my right hand or the left. Then Laban and Bethuel replied, The matter comes from the Lord, so we can't speak to you good or bad. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So they recognize this is something from God, right? Verse 52. When Abraham's servants heard their words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. The servant brought out the articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. So he's giving her her dowry at this point. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, so now like they slept on it. And they're like, yeah, can she stay a little while longer, right? And so they said, hey, let her stay a few more days. Say 10, afterwards she can go. And he says, no, do not delay me. The Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, we will call the girl and consult her wishes. So then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? So they give her a choice. And she said, I will go. Thus they sent away their sister Rebecca and her nurse with Abraham's servant and, or Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rebecca and said to her, may you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Wow, that sounds kind of similar to like the promise that had been given to Abraham, didn't it? Right? So they're blessing her with a blessing that really God had already given to Abraham. 
Then Rebekah arose with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac had come from going to Beer Lahay Roy, for he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out, basically that's just south of where his dad lived. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. That's a lot, and I understand it's like I just read a story to my daughter before bedtime. That's what I feel like right now. Y'all know what I'm talking about? But like a really long one with like 35 pages. That's what I feel like. But I wanted you to hear the whole story because it's important to understand the whole story before we jump into it. Because the crazy thing is, is you can take this passage and you can go about 27,000 different ways of what we read in here. But I want us to see tonight what I really believe is kind of the overarching theme of what's taking place in this story and how that we can apply it to our lives. So with that said, let's pray and we'll jump right into what's here in the text. Lord, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for this group that's with us. Thank you for the band and how they led us in worship. Lord, thank you for allowing us to read 67 verses of your word and to see this really neat story, Lord, uh, that doesn't really seem applicable to today because this is not how we do marriage. But Lord, help us to see how in the world this applies to us today. So Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so what's this story not about? One, it's not about nose rings and jewelry, obviously, right? All right, I told a group earlier today, it's not about, hey, the way to a woman's heart is giving her a bunch of jewelry. Now, some of you might argue otherwise, but that's not the point of the story, right? Okay, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is not that this is advice for determining God's will and who you're gonna marry, or who you're gonna marry, all right? Uh, This is not a proponent of, of arranged marriages. That's not what we're doing here. Now, it is interesting when you read this that you recognize very quickly that, guess what? Our world puts all the emphasis upon how we emotionally feel when it comes to love, right? And we put all the emphasis upon, like, physical attraction and all these different kind of things. And the truth of the matter is, is that what we do find is that marriage, biblically, it's based upon commitment, right? So I'm not saying we should go back to arranged marriages, but what I am saying is maybe we should learn a little something from the fact that love is a choice that you make every single day. If we learned that and we had a biblical worldview when it came to marriage and when it came to love, we'd have a whole lot less divorces out there, right? We'd have a whole lot less people saying, hey, I'm falling out of love. We'd have a whole lot less people finding themselves waking up one morning and deciding that they want out. And so here, that is important to recognize, but that's not what all the text is about. Uh, This is not about throwing out a fleece. Y'all know what it means to throw out a fleece, right? Where you go, hey, God, I'm going to give you parameters, And if what happens, happens within those parameters, then boom, I know you want us to do it. Okay, I can tell you that there are are situations and circumstances where when you are praying through things and you're trying to figure out answers to questions in your life, sometimes, like, God makes it very clear by answering something in a very specific way. Um, But that's also a dangerous place to get into when you start saying, hey, God, I'm going to make a deal with you. If A happens, then B, I will do this. All right, that, that's pretty dangerous. That's not the point of the text as well. Okay, so what then is the point of the text? What's the point of the text? Well, I truly believe that based on this entirety of all 67 verses that we see in this really a faithful marriage. We see in this a marriage that is really, comes to, really comes together because of the faithfulness of four different individuals. 
And I think there's something that we can take out of this and begin to apply to our life when we see how these individuals responded when it comes to God's faithfulness in their life. The first person we see here is Abraham, and it's very clear that Abraham trusted God's faithfulness. Abraham trusted God's faithfulness. If you turn to verse 1 through verse 9, you recognize there, as I read earlier, that Abraham knew God's promise for his future. And he recognized that his son was going to need a wife for that promise to come true. And he recognizes also a couple of other things about God's faithfulness. He remembered and recognized, particularly in verse 3 and verse 6, that God had called the people of Abraham to be set apart from the rest of the world. Because we find there in verse 3 that Abraham is talking about the fact that ultimately that he needs to go, uh, he needs to go back to his family, right? In verse 3 and verse 6, he needs to go back to his family and he doesn't need to marry a Canaanite. That's what's being taught there, right? Um, and did the other thing that we see is in verse 6 is we know that Abraham understood that not only were they to be set apart but that they were to be sent out that they were to be sent out now let me ask you a question have you ever come to the realization that the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament and the same way that God dealt with his people in the Old Testament now I understand there's different ways in which God interacted in far as uh, uh, as far as relation is concerned to them and when it comes to communicating with them and I get that like we don't have God speaking to us and burning bushes anymore right but what I can tell you is this is that God never changes and so when God says to his people and and he says this through Abraham and Abraham recognizes that they are to be set apart that they are to be different but yet they are also to be sent out guess who that also applies to today us right If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God has called you to be set apart and he's called you to be sent out. He just simply has, right? To be set apart from the rest of the world, for there to be something different about you and those around you that do not know Christ as Lord and Savior. There should be a difference. If people can't see a difference in your life, then that's a problem. And the reality is, is that when we begin to trust God's faithfulness, what happens is, is that it becomes more apparent to others that we are set apart, right? but yet also that we are to be sent out. And so Abraham trusted God's faithfulness. He understood this principle that they were to be set apart and sent out. And he also trusted that God would go before his servant and what he was asking his servant to do. In verse six, he tells them that an angel will go before you. He says, I'm sending you on this crazy task, right? I mean, this is nuts. I'm sending you to go find a wife and bring her back. Now that part's not necessarily nuts, but how we see this play out is really crazy. I mean, it really is. Right? I'm going to go to the spring and I'm going to see into the well and I'm going to see which woman is willing to let me drink the water from her jar and in the meantime also give water to all ten of my camels. That's crazy. Right? And so what we see here though is that Abraham trusted God's faithfulness and that he wasn't sending this man on a mission that was impossible but rather he was sending this man on a mission that could be accomplished because ultimately God would go before him. Now the question would be, how in the world could Abraham trust God? Well, how in the world do we trust God? How in the world can we trust God's faithfulness? It's very simple. Because of God's previously fulfilled promises. Right? Because of God's previously uh, fulfilled promises. Think about times in your life where you may have went through struggles. Think about times in your life where things were difficult. And when you begin to look back and see how God began to work, and in the midst of those struggles and those difficulties, it it is nearly impossible to understand what's going on. Right? It really is. But we find and see 
once we're out of that, once we're on the other side of it, if we really begin to take a view at what's taking place in our life through the lens of Scripture, through the lens of His Word, through the lens of His faithfulness, through the lens of His loving kindness, then what we will find is, is that we will find a God that has carried us through that. We wouldn't be on the other side of it if He hadn't. Right? And here we find in Abraham's life, over and over again, God had made a promise and God had fulfilled it. So when it comes to the fact that here's his son, whose mom has passed away, and there's no wife for him, right? There's no, there's no women floating around in this area that Abraham sees fit for him to marry. Then he says, hey, God's going to send an angel before you. He's going to pave the way. And God's going to send you to the servant, he says, to find him a wife. So we see that Abraham trusted God's faithfulness. Not only that, but then we see that the servant trusted God's faithfulness. And here's what I want you to understand. Anywhere along the way, if this chain breaks, we have a problem. Does that make sense? Anywhere along the way, if the servant just goes, man, you are crazy. I'm out. Well, we got a problem. Right? But yet instead, we see that the servant trusted God's faithfulness. Verse 10 through verse 49, I read all of those verses. But think about everything that the servant did. Number one, he swears to Abraham in verse 9. He makes a promise to Abraham, right? Abraham says, hey, take your hand, put it underneath my thigh, and make this promise to me. That was a common way in which, and we see it in other passages in the Old Testament, that they would swear allegiance and make a promise to one another. And so he says, hey, I'm going to promise you that I'm going to do this. Number two, he prepared and he prayed. He prepared and we prayed. We know he trusted God's faithfulness because it says there in verse 10 that he, he got everything together. And then we look down further and down in verse 13 and 14 and we see that he prays to God. He gets there and he's like, hey, God, I need you to do this for me. I need you to do this for me. This is a crazy prayer. Would anybody agree that this is a crazy prayer? You ever thought about the fact that sometimes things don't happen in our life because we pray too small? Just try praying bigger. See what happens. Just see what happens in your life. And so he, he prepares, he prays, and then you know how we know he trusts God's faithfulness? Because when things come to fruition in verse 27 and verse 48, guess what we see that he does? Who's he praise? God. Right? He bows before God. He thanks Him for His loving kindness. He thanks Him for His truth towards the Master. He acknowledges that the Lord had guided him. And then in verse 35 through verse 36 and in verse 40, he proclaims God's blessings. He's speaking to the people of the house there. And he begins to tell them everything that's taken place. And he pro proclaims to them God's blessings. If you go back and you read this story again, it's amazing how many times Abraham's servant says, The Lord. The Lord, the Lord. And when he says the Lord, he's not talking about Abraham. He's talking about God. How God had provided and he was willing to proclaim that. He's constantly pointing back to the Lord. And here's the other thing. The way we know he trusted God's faithfulness is he was purposeful. He was purposeful. As a matter of fact, in verse 56, they were like, hey, listen, can we have 10 more days with our daughter? I mean, that's a reasonable ask, isn't it? Right? Dude shows up and it's like, Hey, God, I need you to find this woman that's going to drink out of my jar, or going to let me drink out of her jar and, and give water to all my camels. 
And hey, God, when that happens, I'm going to give her some jewelry. I'm going to give her a nice little nose ring, two cool little bracelets. And then she's going to run back and tell her family, God. And before he's ever finished, boom, all of a sudden, this lady shows up and does all this stuff, right? And so goes back to the house. She runs back to the house, by the way. That's interesting to note. And she's like, hey, let me tell you what just happened. Dude comes following, right, with his, with his other guys with him. And so they give him a place to stay. I mean, this is nuts. And then the family's like, yeah, this must be a thing of God, not of man. So guess what? We can't stop it. Sure, she can go with you. More crazy, nuts, right? And so they have a reasonable request. They go, hey, but by the way, they wake up, they sleep on it. <laughs> and they get up the next morning, they go, hey, could you give us 10 more days? This man is so purposeful in what he's doing. What's he say? Thanks, but no thanks. We're either doing this or we're not. Right? He's not distracted. It kind of reminds me of the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah's up on the wall, right? And he's, he's like leading them to build the wall, right? And people are like coming up because they're tired of like the fact that they're rebuilding this wall around the city. And they're all like trying to get him to come down off the wall. And Nehemiah looks down at him and he's like, uh, I'm a little too busy to come off this ladder and deal with y'all right now, right? I'm paraphrasing, obviously. It's a little more in depth than that. But the point is, is Nehemiah was so focused on the work of God. He was being so purposeful. He didn't have time to deal with the fools that really just wanted to trick him and kill him anyways. Right? Here, what we find is a man that is so purposed in his heart to do what God has called him to do and to follow the instructions of his master that what happens is, is he's like, man, I, I, we got to go now. We got to go now. And so we see ultimately that the servant trusted God's faithfulness. Every single one of those P's that I just listed there, the fact that he promised, the fact that he was prepared and prayed, the fact that he praised, the fact that he proclaimed God's blessings, the fact that he was purposeful, and that applies to us and everything God calls us to do. Doesn't it? I mean, that's a sermon within itself, but because we have only so many weeks this semester, I have to finish the whole thing, okay? But that's a sermon within itself. And then third, we see that Rebecca trusted God's faithfulness. I mean, this blows my mind. The fact that ultimately what she does is say, hey, I'm going. She gets a choice in this. The family agrees for Rebecca to go. They ask for a delay, but ultimately in verse 57 through verse 59, they give her a choice. They give her a choice. We always have a choice on whether or not we're going to trust God's faithfulness or not. We always do. That is a choice that you and I make. We can't blame it on circumstances. We can't blame it on our parents. We can't blame it on the way we were raised. We can't blame it on what we're dealing with in that moment in time. Ultimately, we have a responsibility to make a choice when it comes to trusting God's faithfulness in our life. It falls on us. And then ultimately, we see in verse 62 through verse 67 that Isaac also trusted God's faithfulness. It's interesting because when you read this story, Isaac doesn't really show up until when? Right here. Y'all realize that? Like we know Isaac's around, we know Sarah has passed away and all this kind of stuff, right? And then all of a sudden we start reading this story about his marriage and like that man's like back at his house. He's not even at his father's house. He's a little further south from his father's house preparing his own house. He's preparing his own house. And what do we see in the text? We see all the camels show up. He's out like meditating and praying and all this kind of stuff, right? And all of a sudden he sees these camels show up and he's like, hmm. 
And then the servant gets off the camels, and, and then uh, Rebecca gets off the camels, and they're like, hey, here's what happened. And what does Isaac do? Isaac trusts God's faithfulness enough that he takes Rebecca as his wife. Almost sight unseen, right? Matter of fact, I guess I would say sight unseen. She put a veil over her, didn't she? How would that be, right? Like it's about a two-month travel to where they were going, so you're talking about probably four or five months, right, that's passed. Can you imagine like four or five months, like some of your dad's entourage is gone for about four or five months, and all of a sudden they show back up on all these camels, right? And when they show back up on all these camels, this lady gets off one of the camels, and you're like, hmm, I wonder what they're doing, right? And then they walk up to you, and they're like, hey, guess what? We found your wife. And you're like, okay, right? Sight unseen. And he trusts God's faithfulness. So ultimately what we see in this story is, is that Abraham, the servant, Rebecca, and Isaac all had to do what God was calling them to do for this thing to play out the way that it played out. Every single one of them. What is my point to that? Well, here's my point to that. Okay. I remember as a younger guy back, I don't know, 25 years ago or so now, my dad had some deacons over at his house, over at our house, and they were going through some stuff church-wise, and uh, church was doing really well at the time and growing, but there were some typical church issues that they were dealing with, and I remember this particular deacon making a comment sitting on the couch, well, if it happens, I guess it's just God's will. And he was talking about an outcome that would have been honestly kind of negative, right? I got to tell you, you know how many times I've heard people say that? Well, if it happens, it just must be God's will. You ever had a tragedy in your life and somebody say something that kind of hints towards that? So one, I want to like backhand them across the face. And two, I want to be like, you need to take a theology class, right? And three, I want to be like, you don't understand God and you don't understand humanity. Because here's the thing. What you have to understand about God is this. Is that yes, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does that make sense? Right? A couple of you in here, you and I have had these conversations about this idea of like God's macro. Anybody in, uh, in economics major or anything like that? Anybody? Like, nobody is. This is terrible. Somebody's got to be. Yay! Hey, there we go. Thank you. Hey, any of y'all remember in, like, high school, you might have took macro or microeconomics, right? Okay, y'all remember that? Right? Macro, like, big overall. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Micro, like, on a small scale. That's really oversimplification, isn't it? But, like, it's, it works, right? Okay? Like, I really, when I started teaching economics in high school, I started figuring out this whole God's will thing a little bit because I started realizing, you know what? Like, when you read Scripture, you see, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? Like, that's what you see. And you understand that there is a, there's an arc of salvation history that takes place over time and that ultimately that there are things that have happened throughout history and will happen throughout history that we know are going to take place because it's God's will, Right? But here's the thing that we forget. Sometimes what we do is we look at God's will in this whole macro sense and we forget that there's a micro sense to God's will as well. Right? And we get confused because we forget that that God has a perfect will. If we were not sinful, broken human beings, God has a perfect will. 
i.e. Garden of Eden. You got that? But God also has a permissive will because we are free moral agents. Now that permissive will is not going to mess up any of that macro stuff. There's no, there's no way it's going to happen. Okay? But to take the approach where we just simply say, well, if it happens, it's God's will. That's dangerous. And here's why it's dangerous. Because what happens is, is you negate any responsibility that you have as a human. And you do it many times in the, in the honest, heartfelt understanding of God's sovereignty. But here's the dilemma. The dilemma is, is that in this story, I read about four or five different commentaries that were talking about this. It is the perfect example of God's sovereignty, but yet human responsibility coming together and meshing together to give us what took place. Because who had the choice in it? Who? In this story, who had the choice? Rebecca. Right? Remember that? I mean, for anybody that says, man, the Christian faith is just like chauvinistic, go read the story of Isaac and Rebecca. Okay, it is crazy, and it starts off going, what is happening here? And then you reach a point, and you reach a point where her family goes, basically, honey, you don't have to go. She gets a choice. Do you see that? So if anywhere along this process, any of that chain breaks, I get it. God's sovereign. He's going to make some other way. I understand that. But do you want to be the one that messes that up? By not trusting God's faithfulness? Do you want to miss out on what God wants to do in your life by not trusting God's faithfulness? Do you see what I'm saying? There is nowhere in Scripture that God's sovereignty negates human responsibility. Nowhere. And there's nowhere in Scripture that human responsibility negates God's sovereignty. And if you say otherwise, it's a very short-sighted theological stance to take. Some of y'all's pastor, J. Josh Smith, he's got a podcast little thing out there that I listen to because somebody, where are you at, Mary? she in here? Yes, she told me to listen to it. And it was unbelievable. It was amazing. It was one of the best podcasts I've heard in a while. You know why? Because he got asked a question about this kind of topic. And you know what he said? He said, we spend a lot of time focused on systematic theology trying to answer that question. And you know what we ought to do? We ought to go back to biblical theology and go, what does God's word say right here in this text that I'm reading? It's what we ought to do. And in this text, guess what? It is clear, it is clear that Rebecca is being chosen. But it is also clear that Rebecca is getting a what? A choice. Now, if you don't know what systematic theology means, bless you. You're better off than those of us that do. But if you do know what systematic theology means, what I want to remind you is no matter where you fall on that spectrum, you better be very careful because here's why. Systematic theology is man-made. 
and it is not inerrant. But you know what is? God's Word. And do you know what's in God's Word? The sovereignty of God. The fact that He chooses. But you know what's also in God's Word? The responsibility of man and the fact that we have a choice. It's there. It's right there. And in this story, it is a beautiful picture of it. Now, say, Tommy, how in the world do you get all that from this? Because here's the deal. Do you know what this story, theologian after theologian after theologian, has told us that this story is also pointing us to Christ and the church? Do you know that? This story is pointing us to Christ in the church. You say, how in the world is that the case? Well, number one, because as we've talked about, everything in Genesis points us to who? To Jesus. Check this out. Here's Isaac, the son. And the father says, the son, the bridegroom, needs a what? A bride. So the father, check this out, sends the servant to find the bride. Ooh, this is about to get good. You better hurry up and start playing. Man, this is getting good. Listen, because otherwise I'll just preach for like 45 minutes. All right? And they got to go home because they all got midterms and stuff. All right, so listen. This is so amazing. The father knows the son, the bridegroom, needs a bride. Where's the bridegroom right now? He's preparing his house. Do you see that? So the father sends the servant to call out the bride. Now we're getting real good, aren't we, Steve? You see, you see where we're going with this? And then what happens? The bride, before she can become the bride, makes a choice to stay or to go. And she goes. And thus the bride meets the bridegroom. And there's a faithful marriage. Can I tell y'all how that's about Jesus in the church? Some of y'all are like, you don't need to, Tommy. Just pray because this is good and we're done. But I got to tell you, because somebody might need to understand it. The Father, God the Father, in His sovereignty, saw that the bridegroom, Jesus, God the Son, needed a bride the church and how do you become part of the church the holy spirit the servant who's not doing his work but instead is doing the work of the master the work of the father of god the father does what he convicts hearts and lives he calls you out And then you got a choice to make. Will you meet the bridegroom or not? See, there's some of you in here tonight. That look, you're like, what in the world was this craziness about? Who sends a servant to find a wife for the son and he ain't ever going to see her? Well, number one, it's... A long, long time ago in a place far, far away from here. That sounds terrible to say it that way, but it is, right? We're talking about like way out in the east, right? A long time ago. So that was kind of normal. 
But boy, what a picture it paints. Because there are some of you right now who in your life you've been struggling with whether or not to become part of the bride, part of the church. And what I'm telling you is this, is that the Holy Spirit is calling you. Because see, here's the deal. God desired a relationship with you. He created you to have a relationship with Him. And ultimately, as we've seen in Genesis, our sin broke that relationship. Right? And the Bible tells us that the wages of that sin is death. Right? The Bible tells us we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So our sin separates us from God. But the Bible tells us that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because before the foundation of time, God had a plan that Jesus was going to come and to die for you and me. And guess what? Jesus did. He came. He lived a perfect, sinless life because he had to be a perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice. The Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. But he also had to be fully human. Because we as humans are the ones that deserve that wrath. And so he died on a cross. And three days later, he rose from the grave. And if you and I put our faith and trust in him, guess what? He will forgive us of our sins. And the Bible says, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And the avenue by which that happens is what's laid out for us in this story. The servant, the Holy Spirit, when Jesus, Jesus says, when I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself that where I am, there you may be also. The Bible tells us, guess what? Jesus has already been lifted up on the cross of Calvary. So therefore, when his word is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit begins to convict and call out lives. You hear me? It's what he does. And there's somebody in this room that may be sitting here tonight, and that may be you. And if that's you, your response then is got to be Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Jesus, I know you died for me. But I want to be a part of the bride. Jesus, I want to be yours. So that one day, the Bible tells us that he is going to prepare a place for us. And that he will come again and receive us into himself. That where he is, there we may be also. What was Isaac doing? He was preparing a place. So my question tonight is this. If you know that the Bible tells you that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, then why not tonight? Why won't you give your heart and life to Christ? Why won't you ask Him to forgive you and to save you? Welcome back to the UGA BCM podcast. My name is Ryan. I'm joined here today by our campus minister, Tommy Fountain. Tommy, how'd you feel about last night? It was a good night, man. I had a lot of, a lot of guests in the room again, uh, following up on some of those folks today. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, you're talking about marriage with, with Isaac and, and Rebecca. A uh, little, uh, little big task uh, to take on with 67 verses to, to cover. 
Um, but, you know, I had somebody tell me we should get used to reading that much of the Bible more often each day. So, you know, I guess it was all right to cover 67 verses. I guess so. Yeah. Uh, speaking of those 67 verses, could you like kind of summarize all 67 in like <laughs> five or so sentences? <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. So Abraham realizes uh, that Isaac needs a wife. So Abraham gets his servant uh, to go back to his homeland, to where his family was, and to find a wife. The servant goes back to the homeland, prays about it, uh, and basically prays that God will show him who the wife will be, and says if she'll drink of, uh, if she'll let me drink of the cup that she's lowered into the well, or the jar, and if she'll feed my camels, or give my camels water, I should say, then boom, that's the woman. So sure enough, as he's praying, said woman walks up. Her name happens to be Rebecca. And so she drinks, she allows him to drink her water as well as giving water to the camels. He goes back to the family. The family says, sure, she can go with you. Family then says, let's sleep on it. Next morning says, eh, give us 10 days. He says, I don't have time for 10 days. They say, would you like to go? She says, sure, of course. He takes woman back to, i.e. Rebecca, back to man, i.e. Isaac. Isaac Caesar, they get married. Awesome. That's, I think that's a great overview of just everything you talked about last night. I think, uh, I think I remember counting you reading throughout all those 67 verses. I think it was like 10 minutes. So the fact that we got that underneath two minutes is impressive. Uh, so <laughs> should I have done just two minutes last night overview or should? should oh, no, I think we needed to okay. read through all, all right. of that. I just want to make sure, just make sure. Yeah. We love the Bible. Yeah, we do. Parts. Okay, good. <laughs> um, at the beginning, uh, I believe it's in verse 2 or verse 3, uh, Abraham, when he's commanding his servant to go and find a wife for Isaac, he tells him when he's swearing to God and when he's swearing to Abraham that he will do this, he asks him to put his hand underneath Abraham's thigh. What, what's the significance of that? Like, Why would Abraham ask him to do that? Yeah, so um, that was actually a, a fairly common practice uh, during that period of time. Um, it showed an intimacy in the relationship between the two individuals where the, um, the, um, the promise was being made. And so uh, we see that in a couple other places in Scripture. And so here what you see is, is that clearly the servant uh, was close to Abraham and also that Abraham was asking the servant uh, to swear to something that was extremely important to him. And so it's really just this side of intimacy between uh, Abraham, the father, and then, of course, the servant that he's sending out. Okay, awesome. That, that makes a lot more sense now. I know that's yeah. one thing I was confused on leaving last night. Uh, it was just one of those little small nuanced details. That... Yeah, it's kind of like today, you know, if you got two boys that are like, you know, hanging out and they, you know, take some mud and spit in it and shake hands and, you know, make a pact, right? So yeah. Instead of mud and spitting on it and shaking hands or you know, what, a blood oath or something, right? Like, instead, yeah. it's put your hand under my thigh to know that we're serious. Yeah, that makes sense. So, kind of changing gears here, um, when the servant is presenting, uh, presenting what Abraham has instructed him to do to Rebecca's family, um, and Rebecca's family makes it then her choice, the Bible doesn't clearly say what she's thinking. It just tells us her response, which is, yes, I'll go. Does her, can her response of, yes, I'll go, does it give us kind of any indication that the servant going and finding a wife for Isaac, that this was almost a, at least semi-common back um, in 
ancient biblical times? Because I know for us in the 21st century, that seems very odd of, oh, well, let me go get my friend to go find a wife for my son. That just seems kind of odd. Yeah, and, and, and it would be kind of odd today. Now, I mean, you've got places, you know, uh, whether it's China, India, some other places where you still see arranged marriages. Uh, within Muslim countries, you'll see arranged marriages and so forth. Uh, but arranged marriages were the common practice of that day. Um, it didn't always happen where you sent somebody a far way away to, to find the wife and come back. But you also have to remember, Abraham is not sending his servant off to just some random people, right? He's sending his servant back to where he knows that like his relatives and his cousins and so forth were living. And so in that sense, uh, yeah, it would have been pretty common um, for that day to see this kind of thing happen. Uh, but yet, I, I do think the emphasis there is that she's still given this choice because that is where it's not necessarily... There's a significant... I'll put it this way. There's a significance that is pointed out that when they are told, or when they ask, when her family asks for the 10 extra days, that they end up looking to her and saying, you know, it's your choice on whether you go or not. There's some definite significance. Do we know everything that was going through her mind? No, of course not. You know, to, to try to read into that, and that could be tough. Uh, we do know that they brought a pretty significant dowry with them, which would have been common as well. We know that he shows her, you know, he gives her the nose ring and the bracelets from the get-go. Um, and so I'm sure all of this played into her decision to choose. Uh, and, 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 you know, we don't read all the conversations that took place that night before, but, but we do read enough of what the servant has said for uh, her family to know that this is, this is Abraham. This is Abram that had left previously, right? This is their family, right? And not only that, but that God had blessed. So it, it wasn't that she was just blindly necessarily stepping into this. Um, there, there was some common, there's some common themes that would have happened potentially in that day anyways that were taking place in this story. Okay. That makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, kind of along those same lines, though, with it not being like common practice today, like what is there any like application that we can take away um, when it comes to dating or when it comes to marriage in this um, from this passage in Genesis with it not be, with the practices then not being as common as they are now? So I would say uh, I am not um, saying that arranged marriage is the way to go, that we should all of a sudden start practicing arranged marriage in the United States. I would say that in the uh, cultures where arranged marriage is practiced, we actually see a lower divorce rate, uh, which is interesting compared to the West and how that we do marriage. I think one of the reasons for that, you, you can't discount the reason that culturally there's just more of a negative view of divorce. That is true. But I also think one of the other reasons for that is because within the system of arranged marriage, there is a higher level of commitment and the understanding that your, your marriage is not based on how you emotionally feel, your marriage is not based on physical or sexual attraction, but that your marriage is based on this commitment that was made not just between you and the, your spouse, but even between your families, right? And so that, that carries a heavier weight with it. Um, and so when you think about marriage today, what I would say is, is probably something that we can take from this is, is that we probably need to have a little bit better understanding of what love is. And that love is truly a decision that you make every day to put the other person's needs and wants ahead of your own. Um, and that love is a choice in this. It's, it's, not, um, it's not just how you feel. And, and I think that's where, as the West, we get it so wrong so many times. And that's not negating that when you first meet somebody as a teenager or a college student or a young adult that there's not these 
feelings and these emotions because there are in many times. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is there's been scientific studies and everything else that have, show, that have shown that over a specific period of time, that stuff wanes, right? That stuff, that, that first physical attraction, sexual attraction that you feel towards someone, whatever phrase you want to use, over time that dissipates, which is why what you see within marriages that last is that it requires work. It requires work to maintain that intimacy. It requires work on both sides to recognize that love is a commitment, not just how you feel. And that, I do think, we can learn from ancient biblical culture. Not that we should have our parents arranging who we marry, but that we should understand that what the relationship with marriage should be based around. Yeah, and I think to that point, like, it's also, it's not just a commitment between, like, a man and a wife. It's also, it's a commitment from them also with God. Yes, yes. We are going to honor God in this, and this is not just for our own personal benefit. Yeah, and that and that's and we see a little bit of that in this story because even when Abraham goes to or excuse me, when the servant of Abraham goes to Rebecca's family, like their first response after he tells the story is is like basically, who are we to say if this is good or bad? Like this is the thing of God, right? And so they're acknowledging that this is a commitment also with God. And even when they send Rebecca off, they give her this blessing, right? And they basically pray this blessing over her. Uh, referencing again her relationship with God. So absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Well, that is everything that we have for you guys today. Thank you guys so much again for tuning in. Uh, We hope to see you next week at Gathering uh, in person, hopefully. And if you listen online, we'd love to have you back next week as well. Uh, We meet on campus of UGA um, in Athens at 450 South Lumpkin Street, Mondays at 8 p.m., uh, we'd love to have you next week. Tommy, what are we talking about next week? Yeah, so actually what I would say is is that next week is actually a worship and prayer night at our gathering, so you won't be able to catch that part online uh, because uh, we'll be having some songs and we'll be having some prayer and some scripture reading and all that good stuff. So it's going to be awesome. You don't want to miss it. Uh, our band is amazing, uh, and so you want to make sure that you're here that night. And then on the podcast side of things, uh, I don't think you guys realize this or not, but we'll be sitting down on Tuesday uh, and still be, in, be we'll still do a little bit of a podcast, but it'll be a little shorter deal than the sermon plus the podcast. We'll just do the back end, and so I'm looking forward to that. So there will be a podcast next week, but it will not have a sermon attached to it. It'll just be some other things we talk about. So you don't want to miss next Monday night here at the BCM as we have a worship and prayer night, and it is going to be an amazing night. So with that said, guys, thank you so much. I never get to be the one to close it out, so I'm going to close it out. And uh, you know what? It's a bye week this week here at the University of Georgia. But next week, it gets real fun uh, as we head on down to Jacksonville. And so with that, um, go dogs, and don't let us catch you wearing any Jordans. Go dogs.